The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello. And welcome to the School of English staff and postgraduate seminar series uh, in collaboration with Trinity Longroom Hub and uh, with the School of English. Um, we would like to welcome you and um, give you a little bit of housekeeping, although this is our last seminar of the series for the year. Um, and Janice and Orla and I would like to thank you all very much for joining us this year. It's been an amazing year of learning and growing and um, coming up with new ways to deliver really fascinating talks. And we're so glad you could join us for this last seminar. Uh, if you are tweeting today, as you know, please tweet at TCD English, um, TLR Hub and seminars TCD 2020. Also, you can use the hashtag TCD English SPGS. And if there are any technical issues, and I will uh, admit right now, I am personally having technical issues, but never fear. We are well aware and hopefully we'll rectify them quite quickly and uh, keep things moving along for you today. A bit about our speaker today. Dr. Sinead Moriarty is finishing up her role as a teaching fellow here at uh, Trinity College in children's literature. Her research focuses on topics including landscape and wilderness in children's literature, eco-criticism and eco-pedagogy. Her first monograph, Antarctica in British Children's Literature, was published by Rutledge in December 2020. She has published on other topics, including environmental children's picture books, mapping in children's texts, and 21st century Robinson odds. Sinead has about 40 minutes to present today, and there will be time for questions at the end. Uh, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. As always, type your questions anytime. You don't need to wait till the end, and I will get to as many questions as possible. Uh, in the time allotted. So without further ado, let's get started. And I'd like to welcome Sinead to the seminar series. Hi, thank you so much, Maggie. I really appreciate that introduction. Uh, and thank you for having me. Um, so today I am going to be talking about Victorian uh, fundraising literature, in particular, uh, the archives of a hospital called the Royal Hospital for Incurable. So I'm going to share my screen so that you can all look at these lovely pictures of uh, the appeals. So let's see, there we go. So in 1933, uh, a London-based hospital, the Royal, the Royal Hospital for Incurables, released its annual fundraising appeal. And the protagonist of this particular appeal was a table, uh, specifically the charity's committee room table, um, pictured here, and gendered female in the appeal, who provides anecdotes about her long years of service and the very many important feet uh, that have rested under her sturdy top. In this long, and I think it's fair to say fairly unusual appeal, we learn that people like Charles Dickens uh, are, one of our, are among the supporters of the hospital. And there are also kind of confessions or revelations uh, as they're described, um, including things like the heated discussions that were had by the board um, around the issue of employing conscientious objectors in World War I. And the appeal is one of a number of fundraising tracts published by the charity in the 1920s and 30s that seek to kind of innovate to offer readers new and surprising twist on the by now familiar format of the annual fundraising appeal. 
And the Royal Hospital for Incurables, uh, now known as the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability, was established in 1854 in Carshalton, southwest of London. And it was the first large scale charity to offer long term care for people living with chronic or what they termed incurable illness or injury in Britain. The charity was founded by the philanthropist uh, Dr. Andrew Reid, sometimes also called Reverend Andrew Reid. Um, and it was the fifth of five charities set up by Reid and um, mostly in the kind of London area. And like many hospitals at the time, the Royal Hospital for Incurables was entirely dependent on charitable donations. And so fundraising was a really essential part of the work that they did. And the early appeals took fairly conventional formats. So they were generally um, accounts of visits to the hospital by prominent people. Um, and these appeals, you know, generally described. So this is an example of the first one that's in the um, in the archives that I'll talk about in a few minutes. And these appeals generally described the visitors experiences of meeting with patients um, and their inevitable combination of pity and admiration. And then a final kind of plea for readers to extend the hand of mercy upon the suffering and through financial support. But by the third decade of the 20th century, there had been huge changes to the way that the hospital communicated with supporters and appeals that we're going to look at from the 20s and 30s reflect a kind of growing cynicism with charitable fundraising and a desire to move away from the patient simply as a kind of object of pity. Um, and these appeals have the potential to offer, I think, a really fascinating insight into changing attitudes towards disability and chronic illness. But fundraising material like this has generally been overlooked in literary analysis of uh, representations of uh, health and disability. I think that fundraising material can be viewed and analysed as literary sources that reflect you know, wider literary conventions, but that also play a role in shaping cultural attitudes. Fundraising material produced by medical uh, charities, um, I think, is an example of what Athena uh, Retos calls narratives of illness. Um, and she says that these uh, narratives have the potential to shape individual experiences of suffering. And Retos argues that narratives of illness could also shape how people perceived illness, the body and the self. And I think this is particularly true of fundraising material, which can be seen as existing at the kind of interface of medical care and literary narrative. Fundraising appeals have a direct impact on the care and quality of life experienced by people living with disabilities, influencing funds available for services and equipment. But at the same time, they're working at a cultural level, shaping conceptions of illness and disability. The RHN appeals have, have never been subject to critical attention. So despite the fact that it's kind of pioneering or unique in its history, uh, the archives of the hospital have only really received kind of scant critical attention. Originally set up, as I said, in Koshalton, actually originally in a workhouse, in a former workhouse, the charity moved to Putney to this building that we see here on the slide in 1863 and has remained in the same location ever since. The charity was the first in Britain, as I mentioned, to, to provide kind of long term care. Um, and in, in 1852, Charles uh, Dickens had written in Household Worlds about the lack of this kind of care. He said, among innumerable medical charities with which this country abounds, there is not one for the help of those who of all others most require succor. Um, and the newly established charity offered two primary forms of aid. So inpatient care uh, for people living with chronic uh, or incurable injury or illness um, which resulted in severe disability and these patients were initially termed inmates 
unfortunately. And uh, the hospital also people uh, supported people termed pensioners uh, who received a regular stipend to help provide for their care and their living expenses. The pensioners were located all across Britain and uh, early appeals mention uh, pensioners in places like the Isle of Wight or you know, uh, rural Scotland uh, to try and indicate the national reach of the charity. Those seeking admission were expected to apply uh, and the applications would then be voted on. Um, and so subscribers, you, you bought votes basically. So subscribers each had a certain number of votes based on their annual contributions. As such, obviously, admittance to the charity um, wasn't based on need, uh, rather it was based on kind of whether you could win a popular vote. Um, Gordon Cook notes that by the 1940s, four votes could be obtained for a guinea and about 2000 votes were required for successful admission. The voting system was abandoned in 1951 following pressure from the public and external body bodies like the King's Fund. Um, by 1865, so just about 10 years after the charity had been set up, there were 80 inpatients and over 120 outpatients. Um, and this increased in terms of the number of inpatients uh, and quickly reached around 200 patients, which is actually around the level that um, the hospital maintains now. Uh, there's no longer any um, outpatients. So the hospital today is called the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability, and it's a specialist provider of care for people living with um, long term illness, chronic illness, um, but also uh, it provides rehab for people with severe brain injury. And um, so about one third of the people um, who receive care there are in receiving uh, short term rehab and two thirds uh, are receiving long term care. So in some ways, it's still fulfilling the same kind of function that it did uh, when it was established. And the RHN archives uh, contain a huge amount of really interesting material and that includes a complete uh, set of patient intake records and um, which kind of is just a snapshot of people uh, applying um, and then more recently people admitted and so that's right from the very first patients in 1854 up to the present day with the kind of more recent records all sealed um, and uh, until they can be released under GDPR and um, the archives also contain a small number of medical case books containing doctors reports which accompanied applications to the charity Along with these important medical records are things like chaplain's notebooks, matron's notebooks, and um, you know there is stockkeeping records, finance committee records, annual reports, managerial papers, photographs, and some voting documentation and admissions votes. Because as I said, people had to apply, and so you would write kind of a narrative of your life and why you needed uh, this kind of care. The archives also hold a large collection of fundraising material, some of which is pictured here. And, and this includes copies of about 41 fundraising appeals produced between 1872 and 1937. And as I mentioned, the RHN has always been a charity and has actively fundraised from the public for the entirety of its history. So while the earliest appeal in the archive is this one on the far left, um, or it might be far right, Life in Shadow, anyway, uh, from 1872, so that's the earliest one that survives. We know that actually they had been producing these appeals um, long before then, they just, we had, they haven't survived in the archives. And um, so there's this kind of gap and um, there's also a gap um, after. So the um, the latest of the appeals that I'll be talking about today is from 1937. Um, and then there's a significant gap of over 50 years until the 80s. And then they started um, storing them again. So as you can see, it hasn't the, the archives are not complete in any way. So what I'm going to focus on is these early appeals. So from uh, the 1872 appeal, which is the earliest one on record right into the 1930s. Um, and I want to start by looking at how the beneficiaries of the charity were depicted. 
So in her 2004 book, uh, Fictions of Affliction, Martha Stoddard Holmes writes that within literature, disability becomes melodrama melodramatic machinery, a simple tool for cranking open feelings and everyone involved, disabled, non-disabled viewers and actors is somehow placed and defined by what floods out. The presentation of disability in a fundraising tract is perhaps an extreme example of the display of the body for melodramatic purposes. It's a form of literature where the machinery, the kind of workings are much less hidden. The language of melodrama abounds in the early appeals, um, which really echo the conventions of Victorian literature in their depiction of illness and disability. And obviously a huge amount has been written about about representations of the body, about health and um, illness in the Victorian period. And authors, you know, like uh, like Rhett also have uh, mentioned, like Stoddard Holmes, like Maria Frawley, and um, they have, you know, kind of charted the portrayals of specific illnesses um, and disabilities, as well as broader cultural discourses surrounding health and the human body in Victorian literature. And this is a period that was, uh, like Stoddard Holmes notes, a time in which afflicted and defective, quote unquote, bodies permeated not only the plots of popular literature and drama, but also published debates around hereditary health, education, work and welfare. And the proliferation of texts centering on or featuring characters living with illness and disability provide ample material for critical analysis, often discussed in relation to this kind of boom in the charity sector during the 19th century. But I think what's frequently overlooked in this, these discussions is the wealth of fundraising material that these new charities uh, produced. The distinguishing characteristic of the RHI was its focus on what it termed the incurable. Um, Jason uh, Sabo notes that the term incurable was generally applied uh, in the 19th century to a series of chronic illnesses um, and only rarely to acute illness. And this is reflected in the records of the hospital. So most of the early patients um, are listed as living with uh, pulmonary, pulmonary tuberculosis, epilepsy, rheumatism, or severe gout. Some patients uh, are also listed as living with more uh, severe or acute illnesses such as cancer. Um, there's another significant cohort of patients who experienced serious injuries, um, sometimes resulting in amputation or sometimes resulting in paralysis. Um, and uh, sometimes the cause of these is a workplace accident. And these are these are the kinds of things that are um, captured in that kind of snapshot that I talked about the patient intake records. Um, and the hospital required that all patients who were going to apply, all applicants had to be what they called hopelessly disqualified from the duties of life. Um, and in requirements such as these, and in the very act of naming the institution, the hospital was effectively creating an identity that patients would be expected to adhere to and perform. You know, obviously they had to perform this identity in those applications for admittance, you know, when they were um, canvassing for votes, but they also do that in the fundraising materials where the hospital actively sought to construct this figure of kind of the, the incurable. Um, and these portraits drew on existing literary and cultural conventions, but at times also sought to undermine these when they might under when they might kind of pose a threat to the financial incentive of the donor to give. In the RHN appeals, the incurable is defined by their illness or injury, which is depicted as rendering them entirely incapacitated. So patients in early appeals are generally depicted as largely submissive, quietly accepting their suffering. As summarising the representation of disability in Victorian girls literature, Lois Keith 
writes that these texts asserted kind of five key points or five key messages that they were um, putting forth. And these were that one, there is nothing good about being disabled. Two, that disabled people have to learn the same qualities of submissive behavior that women have always had to learn, patience, cheerfulness, and making the best of things. Three, that impairment can be a punishment for bad behavior. Four, although dis uh, disabled people should be pitied rather than punished, they can never be accepted. And five, that the impairment is curable. And the RHN fundraising appeals mostly echo this kind of messaging. They arduously asserted that there is nothing good about being disabled. You know, the earliest appeal is this one here, um, Life in Shadow. And as I said, like most of the early appeals, it's a series of narratives of visits to the hospital. And as the title suggests, you know, you know, it has there's some prominent people in here, Miss Thackeray, JC Parkinson, um, along with often there was uh, members of the clergy um, who would provide their uh, descriptions too. And the first of these, Miss Thackeray, in her account, she describes patients as worn, wan, tired creatures who had been dragged out to benefit by the comforting freshness of the day. And in this appeal, the patients are mostly positioned as helpless and um, almost non-human creatures to whom things happen. They are, for the most part, not active subjects in this appeal. And the focus on patience and cheerfulness that Keith highlights is evident throughout all of the early appeals. Um, patients are celebrated um, for their ability to quietly endure. And you know, descriptions of twisted limbs are invariably accompanied by a reassurance that patients were sitting quietly. You know, um, she writes that they have still tranquil faces, quiet and pale. Um, JC Parkinson, whose visit is also narrated in this um, kind of collated appeal, writes, about a young woman uh, with a bright, eager smile and gentle expression who was helplessly paralyzed. He asserts that the greatest marvel um, in when he comes to the hospital is the benign cheerfulness on every, nearly every face. There are no sick room moanings, no sick room expressions anywhere. The fourth lesson that Keith argues that Victorian stories of disability teach is that disabled people can never be accepted. And I think this too is implicit in the early appeals. They imply that there is no place in wider society for people living with chronic or incurable illness or injury. Instead, what the hospital provides is this space away, you know, um, and the appropriate place for people living with severe illness or disability. So segregation is, it's implied, mutually beneficial and supporters should be grateful to the hospital and um, that they're kind of spared of the sites described to them in such harrowing detail. However, while the appeals clearly echo, you know, some of these tropes outlined by Keith, they differ in two of Keith's lessons. So it was vital to the purposes of this charity that patients were depicted as worthy of the donor's support. The appeals therefore work against the understanding of disability as a form of punishment that Keith argues is so prevalent in Victorian literary depictions. And um, as a result, the fundraising tracks constantly reassert the, you know, um, kind of they might talk about the good deeds of the patient and they might talk about their religious adherence often too. And this is particularly I've found in the case of male patients. So um, in his uh, description, Parkinson writes that there are professional men who have been struck down just as their position and prospects seemed at their best, but before they had made provision for the future, commercial people upon whom a cold hand has fallen when their schemes and hopes were approaching fruition, educated laborers in various walks to whom paralysis had come suddenly like a grim spectre calling them to solemn account for overwork. 
So there's always the emphasis, these people were, you know, well to do. Another thing that I should mention is that this was an, one of a number of medical charities in the Victorian period, which was specifically aimed at people, um, what they described as above the pauper classes. Um, and so this was aimed at kind of the middle classes and it was kind of a safety net. And the kind of scare factor in most of these appeals is that a, a middle class person might fall into um, pauperism and have to go to the workhouse. And so this is uh, this is kind of under underpinning a lot of these descriptions of professional men, which you see like this. And the appeals are often defensive documents, which implicitly acknowledge the cultural stereotypes that surround disability and anxieties about the undeserving receiving the benefit of charitable support. And Stoddard Holmes notes that disabled people's status in the emotional economy as objects for compassion or enemies of the state was shaped in large part by their status in the monetary economy. And the appeals are constantly defending the uh, patient's inability to continue to financially support themselves um, or to otherwise kind of contribute financially to the wider economy. They do this by noting contributions already made um, or citing overwork as the cause of infirmity. For outpatients, the, those patients who are living in the community, these justifications are often even more important. Um, in the appeal entitled Our Pensioners, uh, pictured here, it's made up of a series of reports by clergy or other reputable community members. These reports describe the current circumstances of outpatients and the difference that charitable support has made in their lives. They speak of continued work despite illness or injury. Um, J.H. Champion McGill, who's uh, listed as the Vicar of Isleworth, reassures the um, readers that this patient called uh, S.J.L. is a regular communicant of the church and keeps the choir boys' surpluses in repair and cleans the brass work in the sanctuary. Another um, appeal, and this is something that we see in, in terms of the descriptions of women, sometimes the activities of male members of their family is used to justify their worthiness for support. So for example, this um, appeal is, this report is titled, Her Father Fought at Waterloo. Um, again, another one is titled, She Never Wastes a Penny. So in addition to, to asserting the worthiness of the patients for support, the appeals also emphasize the incurability of patients. Um, so Parkinson is in his 1872 appeal um, writes that these people have been struck down by an irresistible power and ask only to spend the remnant of their broken lives uncomplainingly and in quiet. While in fictional texts, Cure provides an avenue for the re resolution of narratives of disability, RHN fundraising appeals actively work against the idea that disability is curable. Maria Frawley writes that as an apotheosis of inertia, the invalid tapped into and expressed deep-seated societal doubts. Doubts not only about medicine's potential to cure, but about more fundamentally about progress and mobility, both master narratives of the 19th century. The fundraising literature produced by the Royal Hospital for Incurables in the 19th century seeks to allay anxieties around the figure of the incurable by asserting that the charity has provided a designated and separate space uh, for quote unquote incurables where their needs are met and they can remain hidden from view. The creation of a novel charity and medical institution for the care of incurables also appeared to kind of work against that threat and um, that's that um, incurable illness seemed to pose to medical progress. So the hospital in its early appear, appeals champions um, the fact that it's drawing on current best practice advice. Um, it sought advice and received advice from Florence Nightingale um, and she advised on ward layout. Um, also most of the early matrons were 
initially recruited uh, from who had been trained by Nightingale School. So there's a, a focus on kind of um, innovation and, and advancement still, even though this charity is working, you know, it's, it's not providing cure like other medical charities in the Victorian period. And in many ways, these appeals also attest to um, what uh, Frawley describes as the capacity of the 19th century invalid to embody productivity at the same and at the same time be emblematic of fatigue and waste. So authors frequently cite the productivity of patients alongside assertions of their incapacity. So Parkin describes a woman who had lost the use of her limbs, but who was employing the only two fingers she had available on Berlin Wool. Other authors similarly describe women busy at needlework and crafts. And it's notable, so this is again the appeal from 1911, um, our pensioners, and I think it's notable that women appear much more frequently in the appeals than men. And this is perhaps um, as uh, because, as Frawley has noted, the 19th century sick room itself was gendered as feminine. This means that although there were large numbers of male patients at the hospital, the figure of the incurable as constructed or imagined in these appeals is nearly always female. And so for the most part, those quintessential qualities of the figure, like submissiveness, submissiveness and patience, don't kind of trouble the conventional image of masculinity in these texts. So instead, masculinity is represented in the figure of the donor, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, who's often described as kind of hale and hearty. Uh, changes to the form and tone of the format and tone of the appeals is evident in work produced in the early 20th century in particular. And this includes works like Halliwell's Sutcliffe's Not Abandoned. Um, there you see on the right hand side is uh, the poem that Sutcliffe opens his appeal with. And while earlier appeals um, sought to really other patients, and I think we can see that in the language that's been used, Sutcliffe actually works to humanize his protagonists. The appeal, I think, appears more intended to evoke empathy as well as simple pity. The author makes a point of saying where each patient is from. He talks about my Yorkshireman, and he talks about a Norfolk woman who was keen to know how Cromer was looking. With the Yorkshiremen in particular, he talks about their shared birthplace, which he calls the good country, clearly identifying with the patient in a way that that isn't really seen in previous appeals. He highlights the military service of another patient before proceeding to depict the patients more broadly as soldiers in a battle against their illness. He writes, there is no glamour about this cause of mine, and that is my difficulty. If the guns were sounding and a comrade were lying between the two lines of fire, wounded and crumpled us up, most of us would run to his assistance. But there is no uproar, no keen, eager sense of hazard about this battlefield on Putley Hill. They are mortally wounded, and for that reason, I ask all healthy men to be eager in the giving. And I think this is particularly interesting because it precedes the war. So um, this, uh, this was published in 1910. And the appeal that was written during the war that I'll look at in a moment uh, was called the Hospital Farm. Um, and that also unsurprisingly maybe evoked images uh, of soldiers and war um, and likens the patients to combatants. But this maybe isn't so surprising because so much of the national dialogue would have been around, uh, around war. So I think it's more interesting perhaps to see the same language being employed here. The portraits of the patients in Sutcliffe's appeal allow considerably more agency on the part of the beneficiary of support. So they are represented as dignified veterans or they are acting subjects with continued interests in current affairs or in the local news from their hometown. Rather than depicting the, the patients as solely kind of other, um, Sutcliffe shows areas of commonality that he shares with patients um, and donors, clearly encouraging the donor to give in part because he or she too sees themselves reflected in the person being depicted. Um, 
Yet, despite this fact that this 1910 appeal seems to represent progress or change, uh, the appeal that I've mentioned in the 1911 appeal, our pensioners uh, seems to revert back to the kinds of descriptions that we've seen in the earliest appeals. So the language more clearly echoes the Victorian appeals. And I think perhaps this is because actually what this appeal is made up of, of is reports that were required to be sent by um, uh, what were called uh, outpatients or pensioners. And um, so they a report would be sent by maybe a local a mem a member of their local clergy or uh, somebody involved in local politics who would kind of look in on the patient and then provide this written report as kind of an authoritative figure. So I think because of that, it's not produced, it wasn't produced as a document intended for publication like Sutcliffe's Not Abandoned. It wasn't produced by an author and um, instead it's produced uh, as a means to, to make sure that these people continue to get their um, to continue to get the pensions that they're being provided with. But from this 1910 appeal, Sutcliffe's appeal onwards, there are attempts at innovation in form and content, and this is increasingly obvious. So this is a picture from uh, the 1916 appeal, the hospital farm, and it pictures John Thatcher, who, who was kind of head gardener at the time. And the this appeal eschews the typical format of an account of a visit and instead describes the hospital farm, including the head gardener and some of his team, detailing how the farm supplies the hospital kitchen. Um, and he also, as we see here, um, describes the patients as combatants. He says, for these combatants, there can be no final victory, but he also says they are nonetheless heroic and magnificent. Um, and so while the center, the figure at the center of this appeal remains labeled incurable um, and kind of is pictured as doomed to their suffering, this language, calling them heroic and magnificent, it differs significantly from what we've seen before. There's also a noticeable shift towards vocalizing the appeals through the perspective of uh, patients and pensioners. So there's appeals like the 1907, my first year in the Royal Hospital for Incurables by a patient. There's the 1912, Thoughts of Incurable. There's the 1937, Talk in Our Wards, which is this kind of dialogue between patients and visitors. So these are all kind of purportedly, certainly, you know, whether we can take, obviously these are produced for, for a very particular purpose and produced for publication, but certainly there's an effort to make it seem like patients are contributing um, to these appeals. And the shift that is evident in Sutcliffe's Not Abandoned continues in these appeals as patients are more allowed more agency and individualized to a greater extent. Other appeals change tack entirely. So um, the 1926 appeal taking around the hat um, is a commentary on fundraising itself. There's a number of com comedic sketches portraying the figure of the donor and the fundraiser that I'll look at in a moment. Um, but despite this change in tone or the, in approach, the appeal still uses demeaning language at one point describing patients as helpless babies and sadly stricken invalids. The 1933 appeal that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk um, is, uh, again, this kind of series of anecdotes um, from the history of the hospital. In this one, it focuses more on prominent people. It's saying, you know, if you support the hospital, you can join this list of luminaries. Um, and it talks about how those people are, are recorded in the walls of the hospital or on plaques and things. And um, so while there is obviously considerable changes in the format and the tone, I think the power dynamics between the patient and the donor remain largely skewed or nearly always skewed in the favor of the donor. The role of incurable doesn't really change substantially and the performance of this role required of people who take part in the fundraising appeals um, is still largely the same. 
So I'll look at this in a minute. This is honestly a fascinating appeal. And if I had time, I would read the entire appeal to you because it's bizarre. But now let's move to looking at the figure of the donor. And in Charles Dickens' book, the character of Mr. Peaksniff presents an argument on the benefits of inequality, sitting wrapped up and warm in a coach protected from the bitterly cold weather outside. Peaksniff remarks on the satisfaction gained from knowing that there are others who are less comfortable than he is. He says, if everyone were warm and well-fed, we should lose the satisfaction of admiring the fortitude um, with which certain conditions of men bear cold and hunger. And if we were no better off than anybody else, what would become of our sense of gratitude? And he describes this sense of gratitude as one of the holiest feelings of our common nature. Stoddard Holmes writes that for their part, the texts of charitable groups and individuals often make the prospective helped person secondary to the personal satisfactions of sympathy and charity. And I think one of the satisfactions that the RHN appeals provide the reader is the secure knowledge that they are that there are certainly people who are less well off than them that they like Pete Sniff are more comfortable both in terms of their financial security and in terms of their health and quality of life than the kind of you know the patients who are described as suffering and helpless in the 1872 appeal Parkinson asks you know do your burdens seem too heavy you know is life turning you against this and um, he says you know the cure for this is to go and visit the hospital and you know one sight of this will will cure you of any ills but most readers aren't going to be able to visit the hospital so what the appeal acts is as you know it's going to be the eyes and ears of the reader and appeal authors frequently create a portrait of the ideal donor and um, to with whom the reader can uh, you know kind of uh, can, can empathize and also who they can seek to emulate and the imaginary donor is kind of generous but also astute and um, the account by Parkinson, which I've mentioned here, um, was actually published in May 1869 in the Daily News before it was then kind of republished as part of and repackaged into this fundraising appeal. And uh, in the fundraising appeal, uh, there's a little note before the appeal begins, and it says that within a few days of the publication of Parkinson's uh, article, uh, a stranger called at the hospital. He asked to be shown over the wards in order to see with his own eyes if the descriptions were sensational. After satisfying himself that they were not, he went direct to the city offices of the Hospital of Incurables and presented it anonymously with a cheque for £500. And this note works on several levels. It assures readers of the accuracy of the account they're about to read. It implies that the appropriate response is a financial donation. And it also provides this kind of suggested donation amount, which is something that we see in uh, fundraising uh, material still today. Um, but it also you know, shows that uh, the donor is an intelligent and discerning person who's going to be you know, kind of clever in the way he gives to charity. They're, these appeals are always trying to reassure readers and flatter them too. They're told that their donations will be well applied. You know, and especially as we move through into the later 19th century and into the 20th century, there's more references to the fact that, oh, you know that there's going, there's lots of uh, unscrupulous charities, there's charities who waste their money, there's charities who create need in their in their actions, but this isn't one of those. And um, while the 1872 appeal uh, kind of celebrates the figure of the Victorian philanthropist by the 1890s, there's the sense that uh, you know, this, the type of philanthropy that existed when the hospital was first set up is already receding. So this is Mrs. Margaret Oliphant who wrote this, another um, uh, kind of quite well-known author of her time. And she talks about the great spirit of charity that abounded at the time uh, when the hospital was founded and says, we 
are perhaps scarcely capable now of that great faith in human feeling. And so readers are asked to emulate their ancestors and reminded that their generosity won't be forgiven. Again, mentioning kind of plaques and things that are around the hospital. So already only kind of 40 years after the hospital is established, we're seeing you know this harkening back to the hospital as this historic institution and um, as something that is representative of a different time. Um, and changes in fundraising tactics are even more evident in the 1910 appeal that I've mentioned not abandoned by uh, Halliwell Sutcliffe. So as well as there being differences in how the beneficiaries are represented, there's also a difference in how he positions his own kind of his own narrative. He says, my aim is not to describe in detail the daily suffering, the hourly need for courage, patients in the face of heavy odds, which are so sadly intimate a part of the life at Putney Hospital. I have little faith in the power of an appeal that seeks to drive the public into giving by harrowing its feelings. He writes that the effect upon myself of contact with these stricken folk is not of interest to the public who have money to give. I mean that it would be easy to lapse into a fine rhapsody on pity on the beauty of resignation. But he says that what he's going to do instead is to insist that in sheer money for a purpose such as this there is a beauty on its own. But despite all of these protestations the appeal is, in fact, an account of his visit to the hospital, and it's a lot like all of the previous appeals in, you know, in how it's formatted. And um, so it's what's different, though, is this nod to a growing public weariness with, you know, uh, a public now really familiar with fundraising tactics. Um, and there's also a desire to position this appeal as something new, innovative, more honest. And part of that is going to be how it represents the beneficiary, too. And clearly, I think the melodrama that Stoddard Holmes sees as quintessential to Victorian attitudes towards illness and disability is being slowly cast aside in these appeals, and probably more slowly than it was in, in society at large, perhaps. Um, but there, what is evident here is a growing cynicism with regards to charitable fundraising, and, but the appeal to kind of better nature of the donor remains the same. Also notable in Sutcliffe's appeal is the connection he attempts to create between the beneficiary and the donor. So as I've described, he he kind of goes to lengths to create um, areas of shared interest between himself and patients. He highlights shared birthplaces, uh, shared interests. Um, but he also does the same thing, you know, creating points of connection between himself and the donor. He seeks to flatter the donor, to build rapport. He constantly uses this phrase, you, you and I, as you and I, if they were as hale and hearty as you and I, or uh, if they love fishing as you and I do, you know, so he appeals to men like him, who he says love to fish, hunt and shoot. But he then also says the patients too are hunting men and shooting men and that if they were as hale and hearty as you uh, and I are for the moment, their need would not cry out for help. Authors of lots of the early appeals associate themselves with donors in the way that uh, Sutcliffe is doing here. You know, they, they are going to be their eyes and ears walking through the hospital. And in part, they build connections through highlighting similarities with the donor and their shared difference with the patient. So I think what Sutcliffe is doing is that is different here is that rather than showing the patients and the beneficiaries as completely other and the, the reader or the donor on the part, you know, kind of sharing commonality with the author, what we see here is Sutcliffe is showing that he has similarities, connections to the patients, uh, and then creating a connection with the donor too. So trying to kind of bridge that gap. Um, and appeals like Sutcliffe's 
or appeals published after the kind of 1910 appeal show continual changes in the depiction of the donor and of the charity sector more broadly. So as, as I mentioned, we have the 1916 appeal um, and that likens the patients to combatants in war, but it also then extends that um, analogy to the donors too. It's kind of saying, don't allow your strength or courage to flag, you know, you be a combatant on the behalf of people at the hospital. And um, I think even more so we see this in the 20s and 30s. So taking around the hat is really, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting, very um, different appeal than what we've seen before. So what we see here is lots of these kind of um, jokes on the uh, on the part, either at the expense of the donor or at the expense of the fundraiser. So um, here we have the donor represented as the kind of grumpy old man, you know, reluctantly handing over his money into the top hat. And um, we have the, the female donor who's not interested and the fundraiser who has to kind of just smile and take it. And um, we have the ambitious young uh, female fundraiser who is uh, pinning the badge on the lapel uh, of a rather surprised donor. But we also have this kind of imperious female uh, fundraiser and a very kind of enthusiastic male donor ready to hand over. Um, and so in these appeals, what we see is that the donor is no longer the kind of benevolent figure of early appeals. You know, they are grumpy, they are distrustful, they are exasperated, or they're like this figure, they're easily, you know, naive, easily won over by the good looks of a female fundraiser. And the appeal that I talked about earlier, Confessions of a Committee Room Table, um, mixes some of the comedic intent of taking around the hat with a kind of history of the hospital told through anecdotes in which famous or important individuals sing the charity's praises. And while the usual protagonist and the jokes, um, you know, while this unusual protagonist and the jokes kind of differ markedly from early appeals, uh, the use of famous names is consistent right from the very beginning, as we've seen, you know, they when it's a famous author, they make sure that we know who it is. Um, but what's different about these 20th century appeals is that they're incredibly knowing, kind of self-referential and demonstrates the efforts of hospital fundraisers to, fundraisers to innovate, to kind of create new forms. They also demonstrate the pressure on fundraising to do something different, to, to accept that uh, the public generally are quite tired of what they've been getting. So I'm really interested in these appeals because I think unlike other forms of literature, fundraising materials has this, has this really tangible, even traceable impact on people's lives, on the lives of beneficiaries. So for instance, with the RHN appeals, it would be possible, and I would have loved to, but I haven't been able to get over for uh, reasons that might be obvious for the last year or two uh, to the hospital in um, in London, you know, we could trace the impact of specific appeals through records like finance committee reports, annual board reports. You know, if we look at matrons reports or uh, chaplains books, you know, they detail provisions available for patients. They detail, you know, purchase of supplies, the application of medical or pastoral care for patients and residents. You know, all of this is, is dependent on charitable donations. And Athena Vretos writes that fiction or narratives are the necessary and pervasive means by which relations between the individual and the social body are negotiated. And fundraising literature, I think, is an important and overlooked part of this negotiation because of this tangible impact that it has on people's lives. And the RHI or RHN now archives reveals how 
you know, depictions of beneficiaries and donors changed substantially across the 19th and early 20th centuries. And the appeals that I've talked about a bit here today reflect an awareness of a public increasingly jaded by fundraising narratives. And uh, they show the way that they attempt, you know, that the hospital attempts to respond to this cynicism with comedy or, you know, with different types of innovation. Um, but the appeals also underscore how enduring the image of the incurable was. You know, while there are certainly changes with beneficiaries being allowed more agency in later appeals with an attempt to focalize appeals through beneficiaries, you know, from the perspective of uh, beneficiaries, the overall tropes associated with the figure of the incurable as imagined in the appeal remains the same across the kind of seven decades that, that, are, that are represented in this and this selection and the problematic power dynamic also endures underlying i think you know wider issues that remain in the charitable fundraising sector and that have been highlighted for many decades by disability studies scholars you know but finally i suppose what i want to do in this appeal or in this in this talk and maybe it's an appeal um is to show that there's so much more to be uncovered one in the rhn archives you know this is a fascinating untouched archive really and um, but also in the wider area of of fundraising materials i think this could add so much you know and through this kind of traceable, tangible impact that they've had. Um, I think it, it, is, it could open up and complicate our ideas, um, our existing ideas of representations of, of illness and disability in literature and in culture. So uh, yeah, I hope you found it interesting. <laughs> Maggie, I think I can't hear you. Yeah. Maybe it's just me, but I can't hear you. Hi, can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> oh, I wasn't joking when I said I was having technical difficulties today. So fascinating. Um, as a librarian slash archivist in the making, I'm I'm so interested and I have so many questions for you, but I we also have some questions in the QA. So I um I want to start with this idea that the literature, you said it's tangible and traceable, and of course it's the archive does for all these historical studies and especially these maybe less uh, mainstream forms of literature. And I'm interested, I'm gonna start and try to, to limit it to this one question. Um, I'm always interested in what's not included in the archive um, and, and the selection process whereby archivists and librarians keep material out of a collection as impactful as putting material in a collection. Um, but I'm also really interested in the narrative construction of the incurable or the imagined incurable as kind of a parallel to, of course, the child, um, uh, you know, in, as we would see it constructed in the Pollard or anything like that. And this idea that you have the fundraising propagandistic literature, you have um, the actual third party reports that are being done to keep these pensions coming, but you also have these essays that potential patients are writing for themselves. And I'm wondering if you can get a sense from the archive about how much those first person narratives of applications are equally um, imagined or constructed as maybe the propaganda is, as, as if to say the, they know within the society they're operating that they have to create a, a certain image of themselves that just kind of creates this perpetuating um, you know, cycle of, of imagined incurable, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. So that's my question I'll put to you, um, sort of what's not included and then how does that construction of the actual patients themselves uh, influence this kind of conglomerate archival construction that you're looking at? Right, yeah. So I think this is a really good 
uh, question. And I think that certainly when you said that what's not included, the first thing my mind jumped to is the, you know, the actual experiences of people here, because anything that we have in the archive, and unfortunately there aren't even that many, um, there aren't even that many of the um, kind of accounts, you know, that, that people wrote for their applications, you know, for votes, it would be great if there were more of those, but unfortunately there aren't. Because I should, I suppose, preface this by saying that the archive was only established, and I should also put my hand up this angle, I was involved in establishing the archive. So um, it, it, what it, it came about just because this charity is, has all of these old records and they were kind of scattered across the charity, uh, across, across different cupboards and different things. So it hasn't been, it, it, what it was put together was through a call for anything and everything. And so everything has made it in, but it hasn't been collated in the way a lot of archives would have been. Mm -hmm. And that have been kept, it's hard to know whether they were kept because people thought it was important. And um, certainly that that is obvious in terms of managerial records, financial records that they thought they had to provide for the charity commission. Um, but other records that you would think would have been important, like the um, I, I mentioned the medical reports that went alongside the applications, they aren't there. But in terms, you know, so so the the archive is a bit kind of a, a, of a hodgepodge, and I think it's suffered from not being kind of established and created uh, curated a lot earlier than it was. Um, but in terms of that second question, yeah, I think absolutely the even the surviving kind of voting admission um, narratives that uh, people would have created themselves, I think certainly are shaped by representations that they've, you know, I, I very, they seem to echo all of that same language about helpless, incapacitated, um, incurable. So I think it's, it's very hard. I think it would have been very hard to provide, you know, uh, an individualized or, you know, an authentic account because it's, it's so, so obviously, or so purposefully um, aimed at, at you know canvassing for votes so as much as any of the material that we get for our elections is an honest account of the politicians you know uh, you know thoughts or I, I think unfortunately people weren't able to and so that's a real a real loss and so one of the ways i think that we could that i didn't have a chance to talk about here one of the ways that we could seek to kind of retrieve some of the you know the a sense of the people here is is in some ways through looking at how individual people kind of pop up again and again so sometimes the same people appear and we hear that they're doing the same things or you know there's a, pe a person who's listed as um being paralyzed from the neck down but she writes and she's taught herself to to use her mouth to write and to use her mouth to paint um, and so you get a sense of that person in that and also in the pictures i think there's a whole other project um to look at the visual representations of fisheries um, and how they have because i think you would have more control of you know how you were dressed how you know how have you chosen to, to present yourself visually knowing that you might you, you were going to be photographed when being photographed is a big deal so um i think that's another avenue that we could seek to kind of try and find a you know some kind of authentic voice but like you say i think it's very you know real experiences is very much elided unfortunately in these in these archives mm -hmm. excellent thank you um a uh, question from Shelby Zimmerman. Um, she says, thanks for an interesting talk. Have you encountered similar material for the Royal Hospital of Incurables in Dublin? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because the Royal Hospital for Incurables in Dublin actually predated um, but had a slightly different function than the Royal Hospital for Incurables in Britain. Um, and no, so I've looked, I spoke to the, they do have materials, but a much, much smaller archive. Um, and so they don't have all of the like it is quite unusual, I suppose, to have such a run of, of materials because it's just charities didn't think they were important to keep, you know, mm -hmm. 
they did the job and they got the money in and um, you know these kinds of fundraising materials weren't always kept where i have encountered other similar material is say uh, great ormond street hospital and you know i've main work has been in children's literature and um, and so i found those fascinating you know particularly like you say there is this and um, you know people with disabilities are unfortunately in these appeals often likened to children and there's the, a lot of the right. same kind of problematic power dynamics exist you know and and then it's kind of um, added to by the fact that children are you know children without the capacity to consent and um, right. and you have a lot of material aimed at child readers so i think that's a really fascinating archive too and also largely underexplored very interesting okay um let me ask you this question from aileen douglas she says thanks for a great paper sinead a comment and a question the 1933 appeal narrated by the table reminds of the very popular subgenre in the mid 18th century, it narrations, narrated by coats, coins, coaches. My question is, if the life accounts patients had to submit as part of their application still exist, or were they ever used in funding appeals? Yes, so some of them do exist. Unfortunately, there aren't many. Um, in terms of your comment, yeah, I think absolutely, yeah, and that's really interesting. Like, I wish that the table went, like, it's so odd, and I think it had the potential to be even better, like, like, odder, you know, because it, it lapses back into all of this, you know, uh, you know, just kind of more standard uh, fundraising narrative dialogue. Um, but yeah, that, I think that that connection that you've drawn, Aileen, is, is absolutely um, relevant. Um, and in terms of, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have that many voting, you know, application slips. What we do have is, you know, we, we have some of those, I think there is um, less than 10 that still exist in the um, in the records and they would be the things that would have been posted out so kind of with detailing different people's stories and um, so that would have been posted out to subscribers um, and then there's the material from doctors that might quote patients you know in those applications for support we also get little insights into people's lives and um, when they explain in their applications you know where so often it's like kind of trying to explain where your current area support is coming from. So you get a sense of where, who's people's parents, you know, what their right. situation is, where they're living, when they first experienced the, the condition that's uh, led them to apply. So that's where I think it is more of a kind of detective work, rather, trying to figure out, you know, get a sense of people's actual lived experience um, rather than them being, you know, kind of unfortunately having that much actually existing material that would speak directly to that. Excellent, thank you. Um, Jane Carroll has a question. Uh, she says, that was Thanks fascinating. Again. I was really taken with the image of the women patient, um, patients doing her Berlin work with two fingers. Was there an emphasis on this kind of busy work for both male and female patients? Yeah, so busy work definitely with female patients. And we see that in images. We see that, you know, there's images of people, you know, basket weaving, there's images of people um, knitting. There's also descriptions, there's a lovely description in that 1933 appeal of how this every year this parcel arrives and it's got a funny label on it and everyone gathers around. And of course, it's from the Queen and the Queen has sent like brocade and silk and things um, for the annual bazaar. And this is what patients make. And there's there definitely that idea of busy work. You know, there's this focus on, you know, Oh, aren't, aren't they incredibly incapacitated? But don't they make the most beautiful lace? You know, so there's all this kind of um, these kind of descriptions. What I, it, you don't see that so much with the men. There isn't really descriptions of what the men do kind of day to day. 
there's descriptions of there there what there was was a men's billiards room amazing and so there are some pictures of of uh, male patients playing billiards with members of the male staff and and male and female patients were separated out so there was uh, you know there was a male dining room a female dining room a male sitting room a female sitting room um but in the appeals as i say we actually don't get that much you know that many disc, you know actual depictions of of male patients especially descriptions we get it in that kind of parkinson um a, kind of tract where he talks about professional men and you know there there's always this I think that in those I get the sense that they're a lot more defensive in terms of why male patients are there there's a sense that there should be one woman to look after them at home whereas the, the female patients often it's described that they're this kind of burden on a, another family member and they the yeah. family member can't stay so yeah I do think definitely busy work with women less so with men and even kind of maybe less representations of men in general interesting Okay, and here is a question from uh, Gemma Donnelly Cox, who says, thank you for an interesting and illuminating presentation. I study philanthropy from an organization studies perspective and find many similarities in your analytical lens, focus on agency, discourse, donor motivation. Could you please speak about the contribution to the study of philanthropy your discipline brings? Yeah, so I think that's a that's an interesting question. And I think there is there is a lot because, you know, that I suppose I can't speak so much to having a great knowledge of the study of philanthropy, but I think that what these kinds of materials could offer is, you know, how that kind of how philanthropy and literary text intersect and, and how those worked together. Um, and I think these kinds of charities, these kinds of archives um, have also a lot to tell us about the, the development of 19th century philanthropy and in little ways, you know, you know, things that mightn't be so obvious in the kind of in the historical record of these charities, where we could look at disagreements in letters between the between the uh, board members, where you could look at how a patient might have shaped um, decisions, like when you look at the matron's uh, notebooks or the chaplain's notebooks. So I think uh, looking at these sources has the potential to kind of just add, complicate and add to those existing uh, scholarly work. Mm -hmm. That literary construction of of whatever's going on over there, for sure, mm -hmm. absolutely. So amazing and so interesting, Sinead. I'm. It's it's just so much fun to talk about a literature that isn't um, quite. First of all, that we've not talked about in this series, you know, this year, and come anywhere close, and that's just not quite the thing we're used to discussing. So thank you so much for bringing such a unique and um, fascinating subject to us to close out our series. We're just delighted to have you. Um, if there are no more questions, I don't believe, do I see any more questions? Last chance, we have a few minutes left. I think we've just about, um, maybe I'll say that I think that they are working to try and get the uh, hospital archives digitized and, you know, there's, uh, there was funding from the Heritage Lottery Fund, so they're going to try and put stuff up online. So, and hopefully people will be able to visit once. Uh, obviously, everything with uh, COVID uh, settles down. And one of the really interesting things I think there's potential for is, you know, uh, patients have been interested, you know, current patients at the hospital have been really interested in looking at the archives and doing artwork response pieces. And, you know, so I think there's really nice because it's a hospital that still exists in the same place. There's loads of potential for, for you know, kind of responding to this kind of part, how you're part of a, a continued community, whether that's from staff 
members, you know, from beneficiaries, you know, so I, I think it's it should be a really interesting archive and hopefully it'll open up a lot more um, if there's anybody who is interested in actually going to see it or uh, having a look at it online. So I think it's uh, rhn.org.uk is their website and they um, have an archivist now um, and he sometimes does little pieces on the um, on different things in the archives. Um, so that could be a nice thing to, to check up on. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today. Um, it's just been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, thanks to everybody who has joined us for this last seminar for the series for the year. Um, I want to take a minute to thank uh, Dr. Kweeba Whelan, who is with the Long Room Hub and has graciously and kindly spent so much of her time with us this year and helping us facilitate these webinars. Um, it's, she's just been an invaluable support to us and we're very grateful. I'm speaking for Janice and Orla as well when I say. Um, also, many thanks to the School of English here at Trinity for helping us figure out how to keep the seminar going this year and um, supporting us in all of our efforts to, uh, to have it going on. We have, um, we will be asking for the next round of co-conveners or conveners. Uh, look for the email to come. If you would like to take over uh, hosting the series next year, we will be looking for some um, warm bodies, so to speak. So thanks again to everybody. We hope you all have a lovely rest of your day and have a very good night. Thank you, bye-bye. Thanks for having me. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.